Chapter 15. Staff Officer. The role of a staff officer is to work directly with one of the chief officers in a force. In the case of the West Midlands, the most senior officers were the chief constable, the deputy chief constable and the four assistant chief constables. All had individual staff officers and each had a PA who managed their diaries. The staff office was therefore a weird little ecosystem of senior officers who were generally phenomenally busy and us, their minions. It felt like a million miles from operational policing and I quickly realised that I was probably going to hate every minute. I'd gone from being a largest fish in a small pond to a minnow in a large lake. I'd lost my acting inspector rank to enter the staff office and was back to my rank of sergeant. I'd also gone from a role where my opinions and experience were listened to and appreciated to one where I was completely invisible. On the rare occasions that I offered up my thoughts in a meeting, many senior officers would look at me with barely disguised disgust that I'd opened my mouth. It was my first proper exposure to chief officers. Such officers are generally highly intelligent and most of them have a phenomenal work ethic. They usually started work early and finished late every day. They had a busy schedule of meetings covering an extensive range of complex issues and they were expected to grasp the details as well as the big picture. However, many of them were quite one-dimensional in terms of their wider lives and rarely mentioned life outside work. Since that time, I've worked with a lot of other senior people from different parts of the public and private sector. Many of them are much the same, much happier to be at work than to be at home with their families. Each to their own, I suppose, but it wouldn't be for me. I can recall an amusing moment one Friday evening when I'd drawn the short straw and was staying in the PA's office adjacent to the Chief Constable's suite until the Chief decided to call it a day. Specific staff officer tasks had to be performed, such as letter writing, clearing away sensitive documents, locking all the safes and offices, etc. It was about 7.30pm when the Chief popped his head around the corner from his office and said, Ian, could you be good enough to grab Mr Smith, the finance head, and ask him to come and see me? I advised him that Mr Smith had gone home. I knew that because I'd said goodbye to him myself at about 5.30pm. He then said, Oh, right. Uh, in that case, can you ask Mr Williams, the HR head, to pop in? I advised him that this person had also gone home. The chief looked confused and irritated. What? Both of them? Is anyone still here? He asked. I reminded him that it was Friday. I told him that everyone had gone home and it was just the two of us left. He looked a little bemused by this before saying, Oh, well, in that case I suppose I'd better go home myself. It was a funny exchange but also a bit sad really. As well as being able to watch chief officers in their natural habitat, I was also introduced to the baffling language of senior officers in meetings.
This was a particular spectacle, when they were all in a meeting together, as they would speak in a way that defied understanding by any normal person. The language they used was a weird concoction that I can only imagine was created by fusing the opaquest language from the civil service, local government, corporate life, and some business master's jargon. More than anything, it had very little to do with rolling around in the gutter with drug addicts or chasing burglars over garden hedges in the early hours of the morning. It was always amusing to sit and listen to officers having professional disagreements with senior partners from other government agencies. They all used such vague, coded language, and nobody ever said what they were actually trying to say. Observing their professional disagreements was like watching two people trying to beat each other to death with a feather. Terms like rather unhelpful would be about as critical as it ever got. This was used when what that person really wanted to say was, I think you're a complete cock and you're talking nonsense. Many of these meetings with partners were usually wasted with a load of blue sky thinking with no obvious policing progress or decisions made whatsoever. This probably explains a lot about how it is that the police now routinely have to deal with all sorts of issues that should be dealt with by other agencies. It's a situation created over many years by a complete absence of plain speaking. In my opinion, chief officers across the UK should have been saying to their counterparts in the NHS, we are not a repository for mental health cases languishing for days in our cells. If you have funding issues, you must address those issues to central government, but we cannot and will not pick up the pieces from a broken mental health system. However, interestingly, this odd coded language soon became the approved way to get on in policing and was slavishly copied by every ambitious chief inspector, superintendent and chief superintendent who had aspirations for the top. Their language became liberally peppered with impenetrable terminology that left most ordinary listeners completely mystified. Therefore, it soon became quite a painful task to write the minutes in meetings, as it was not at all obvious what someone had actually said, as they concluded a five-minute-long, jargon-filled monologue that would have horrified the Play in English campaign. How did this happen? I really don't know, but I suspect that it was possibly another of the unexpected outcomes of those cash-rich labour years, where civil servants stuck their noses into every single aspect of policing. And this language of lean systems, customer journeys, performance metrics and outcomes infected the organisation, creating a generation of managers who seemed to have forgotten that they were police officers. By the way, I started to see and hear slightly less of this sort of weird language as the resources began to disappear from policing after 2010. I guess that when everyone is running around with their hair on fire, they're less inclined to talk in riddles. One of the biggest problems in the 2000s was that these senior managers tended to promote in their own image. This created a growing culture 
where managers gradually bore less and less resemblance to the people who actually did the job, never mind the public who were receiving the services of the organisation. Those people actually doing the job of policing, in turn, mostly rolled their eyes when the boss walked out of the room. This generated an understanding that the only way to get on, in terms of getting promoted, was to swallow the corporate pill. To be fair, there were plenty of examples of senior officers who were also operationally extremely competent, but these were usually the ones who had cynically learned to turn it on for the duration of the promotion process and then revert back to reality when doing their day job. Unfortunately, for every one of these, there were plenty who had bluffed their way up the promotion ladder. These people were seemingly divorced from reality, and many of them unfortunately believed their own bullshit, which is always dangerous. In my later days in the force, the easiest way to identify them was to see who was the most active on Twitter. With a few exceptions, there was a definite correlation between a lack of operational experience and Twitter activity, which was used as a vehicle for shameless self-promotion. Many senior officers at this time had studiously avoided any job on the way up that had a large amount of risk attached to it, because they knew that it could be career-threatening. Anything involving tackling serious criminality, child abuse, or dealing with high-risk sex offenders would be the very last thing that they wanted to get involved in. Much better to flip between projects or cushy strategic jobs rather than being exposed to that real policing stuff. I suspect that this generation of performance-obsessed corporate police types who only ever asked how high when the Home Office told them to jump left the service dreadfully ill-prepared for the horrible cash-strapped years after the Tory party were elected in 2010. This was a generation of senior officers who had never rocked the boat and who were deafeningly silent when police funding started to dry up. One of the reasons that I joined the police in the first place was that I couldn't bear the thought of being stuck in an office every day. An office environment can be so stifling and any little eccentricity or annoying mannerism on the part of your co-workers can quickly become completely infuriating. The dynamics and office politics with the PAs in the staff office always amused me. Many of these women had been in their roles for a long time, working for several generations of senior officers, who would come and go over the years, and this gave a few of them an inflated sense of their own power. It was funny to watch superintendent or chief superintendent, who would have been treated like God in his or her own little fiefdom, grovelling and supplicating before the PAs, who would treat them like naughty children. These senior officers knew perfectly well that if they pissed the PA off, they'd get nothing. We had to write all sorts of reports and briefing papers for the bosses on a wide variety of subjects, and the staff officers became pretty adept at hoovering up a lot of information quickly and making sense of it. We also had to write draft responses to letters from MPs, civil servants 
and members of the public on all sorts of things, but generally complaints. Many of these could be quite heartrending, but some were just silly and annoying. For example, a constituent would complain to their MP that they'd not had their property returned to them after an arrest, but what they'd neglected to explain to the MP was that the property in question had actually been stolen by them at gunpoint in an armed robbery. The Chief Constable would examine the responses to these letters to check he was happy before they were sent out. Our Chief at the time, Sir Paul Scott Lee, was a genuinely lovely man. He had an almost supernatural ability to spot grammatical errors or typos within seconds of looking at a document. He was also able to instantly identify the one tiny flaw in a letter that would ensure that the matter would not be fully resolved. It took us all a while to get onto his wavelength, but he taught me skills that served me well for the rest of my career. Ultimately, my heart wasn't in the role as a staff officer one tiny bit. Nonetheless, I stuck the posting out for just over a year, and in the meantime, I sat and passed the formal inspector's promotion process. I'd learned a lot about how the organisation worked, but I was itching to get back to operational policing. I made it known that I wanted out of the staff office, and thankfully they found someone to take over from me. I then received my first proper inspector's posting, and found out that I was going to Stetchford in East Birmingham, or, as it was known at the time, D3 Operational Command Unit.